The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. So now we are returning to our work in the book of James. Um, should be quite familiar to you, and uh, uh, this morning in our work in James, we'll be finishing the second of three subsections within verses 19 through 27. So if you're uh, carefully diagramming and, and maybe in the margins of your Bible making sections and subsections, and you wonder the, the subsections of subsections, we you can just follow the fact that we're finishing out chapter one. And within chapter one, there's I have three major sections. I think the book has three major sections, and we're coming to the conclusion of that now. So it's a section that I hope most of you uh, realize or readily recognize that it's one in which James gives his primary attention to the Word of God. And I know I've emphasized this a number of times that, of course, the Scriptures give attention to the Scriptures and a self-attesting attention in that regard, but it is a unique emphasis in terms of how uh, the, the nature of the effectual and or transformational receiving of God's Word. So it can self-testify and it can speak to the Scriptures throughout and it can validate and strengthen our understanding of it, but this is intentional in different ways. So first, again, was the effective reception of it and the or transformational work of receiving the Word of God. Then we saw the action or the, the requirement, the command to put our faithful, um, to put the scriptures into faithful conduct and actions by being doers of the word, a pattern of life that should ultimately be identified as an expression of pure and undefiled religion before God and Father. That's where he's going now. So we saw the proper receiving and receiving the transformation at works and the transformation, the doing, and now what does that doing look like? And how do we uh, really evaluate in terms of what is an effective doer. And so James is going to continue to press us with this unique focus on the scriptures. That's all of chapter, it's all chapter one, section three. So 19 to 27 would be sufficient in terms of how we see that. Now, we began our work in this, uh, when verses uh, 22 through 25 last week, and we immediately were engaged by perhaps what I would say is the most familiar uh, statement within the book of James, the exhortation not simply be hearers, but doers of God's word. Again, there's maybe a couple other things in the book of James that draws your attention because of either theological study or maybe personal interest. Maybe you have really given time and attention to the, the discipline and study of prayer, and so you think, well, I think of Elijah and, and his example in chapter 5, and there's a lot of things that come to mind in the book of James, but I think if you just man on the street said, what is James driving us to, or what's the exhortation that you want to walk away with, it's not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And that's where we were just this last week, and where we'll continue on this week as well. And while this was an engagement with, a, again, an extremely familiar text, we, we did labor to make some important things clear about it. First, this was a command, not simply a generous exhortation or uh, to, an exer to exercise profitable habits as students of the Scripture. So it wasn't a, you know what? We study the scriptures a lot. We ought to be doers of the word. That'd be a really po good point of connection because, you know, what's the point of studying if we're not doing? Well, that is a good conclusion, but we don't need to diminish it by just saying, well, this is a, a generous exhortation with profitable habits. It's a command. This is commanded here. Therefore, it's not an expression of elective counsel or something worthy of striving for. It's what God expects of us and we must be vigorously pursued. We have to be doers of the word. If we're genuinely in Christ and we've genuinely received and been transformed by the word, we have to put it to action. There's no elective element to that. There's no, well, some are really good students, some are really good doers, some are both. No, there's no, no choice in the matter. You receive, you're transformed, and you do. And 
How weighty is this? Well, the second and complementing expectation that we addressed to the command was that we observed was the weight with which James spoke to this matter. Namely, that if one is a hearer only, then they have deluded themselves. They are deceived by their deficient calculations that simply hearing is or ever would be enough. That's never enough. So we, we talked about the, the quiz, as it were. And if James said, okay, fill out the rest of this statement, you are to be um, you are to receive the word of God and be transformed by it. And if he said, yes, that's enough, we're done. Well, you're right. You're done with step one, maybe even step two, being transformed. But it's a three-part answer. And if you haven't finished it, then you've never answered it properly. You've actually self-deceived yourself. You've miscalculated, as it were. Third, we observed how James used an, extre- uh, an extremely relatable illustration of a man looking into a mirror and then walking away as though his engagement with his own reflection had never occurred. And we noted that by design, the image was intended to draw the absurdity of this man's conduct because inherent within the illustration was the understanding that he should have observed something of himself that would have benefited from further attention. But though he looked at his own natural face, he had forgotten the whole of the matter. And that's why it's, it was such a peculiar illustration. If, if he just glanced and walked away, okay, of course he didn't do anything. This is an intentional look, an intentional look in which he saw something, saw something that should have been answered, addressed, or attended to, and it's like it never happened. It's a very peculiar experience, and that's what James is driving at in terms of the illustrative part of this component. And such is the nature of the man who looks upon the word of God and remains unchanged and therefore does nothing, remaining a hearer, and never a doer of God's word. Finally, we addressed uh, and we finished our time in the text last week by addressing the section's contrasting conclusion. We didn't have a chance to really build it out that much. We're going to finish building it out this morning as well as advancing to the remainder portion of the chapter. But we, we did address the, the section's contrasting conclusion, which speaks to the man who has engaged the scriptures and is himself a doer of the word. So you had the negative illustration and then the positive counterpart to what this should look like and in such one who is blessed in what he does. However, in his conclusion of this subsection, James employs other ways of speaking to the scripture than what we have seen to present in his letter. And this is something that we only referenced to last week, and we're going to give some time and attention to this morning. Namely, that he calls them the perfect law and the law of liberty. Matters that we will return today as we finish our work in verses 25, but also advance to the conclusion of the chapter. But before we continue, let's read the whole of this third section of the letter now. So again, I keep saying section, subsection, all that. Don't worry about that. What I want you to see is the the whole of this in context. I want you to recognize that what we're saying in verse 25 wasn't just a really, or 22 wasn't just a really neat, good exhortation. It was a command. It was a command framed in view of not only James 1, 1 through 22, but more precisely 1, 19 through 22, 22 having a look to 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27. So we want to frame that together. We want to keep that flow of context and argument in view. So before we continue with looking at verse 25 more closely and finishing out this third subsection of of the third section, let's read our text together um, so that we can frame it properly. Verses 19 through 27. So you can follow in your copy of the scriptures or up on the screen where I have it kind of divided up for us in regard to how we've been walking through it. So James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and gentleness, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That was the first subsection. 
Receive the word. Work hard at receiving the word. Prepare yourself to receive the word and let it work its transformative work. But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. It's where we are now. We're finishing that second portion, receiving, being transformed, doing. And now he's going to fill out that doing even further. If any, and if anyone thinks himself to be religious, while not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, I'd like to address James's use of law to express the scriptures here by way of first speaking to a matter that we are working to develop through the first major lesson, the fundamentals of the faith class. I have to say first major lesson because it was lesson one, and when you divide lesson one into two parts, is it lesson one anymore? So we're calling it first major lesson. So in the first major lesson of the fundamentals of the faith class, we've been looking at the unity of the whole of the scriptures as expressed by their, what I would say and call the continuity and context. And we're working on this concept in our class that we began with the foundational work of identifying the broad categories that we traditionally put the 66 books of the Bible in when working to frame a, a view to the scriptures as a whole, that there's, there's ways to help us think through it. How do they fit together? How do they organize? That's helpful, but I also want you to see that there's a, a continuity to their context, but specifically the books have a context, the relationships of the books have a context, and the scriptures of a whole have a shared context. So we're framing that in our, our uh, fundamentals of the faith class, slowly but surely, but also it's important to see that here when you have things like engagements of the law. So these, uh, these categories are of uh, books of the Bible, we group in similar writings, but we also recognize, again, that we see them all um, as a unit. So a book from history overlaps with a book from maybe one of the major prophets and possibly even from poetry as well. They're, they're dynamically overlaying with weather, one another, yet the continuity does not solely consist of historical ties. So if you, if you outline a copy of the scriptures in terms of um, a timeline, you'll see that certain prophets and, and certain things are overlapping, but that's not the, the full extent of their continuity and context. There's also thematic relationship and how the plan of redemption's unfolding. There's a thematic development with um, matters of theology. There's thematic development of uh, similar approaches and themes and all such matters, disciplines of the faith. And so we see these these overlapping relationships, and we see the continuity and context, but also difference. That's the context part. There's differences as well, because God's plan has been unfolding from the Garden of Eden and then all the way through the covenant nation, Israel, and now at this moment through Christ's church. So it will look different at different times, and we have to keep that in view, including how terms are used and how theology is developed and how things are expressed. So there's clear distinctions that develop along the way. And yet again, we maintain there's that continuity within each book's respective context and its relationship to the other books of the scriptures and the scriptures as a whole. So this is no small part of how we have to wrestle through a proper appreciation, again, of how language and the substance of one's uh, uh, terms are used. So of the 150 plus references to the law or the word law in the New Testament, we have to figure out how is that being used, uh, particularly as the subject is made perhaps even more complex by the range of ways that the law or the word law is used and expressed. Because sometimes it isn't just the law. So we have a number of ways here, the law, 
the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the law of our fathers, the law of God, law of my mind, law of sin, the law of sin and death, the law of the spirit of life, the law of Christ, the law of, com- the law of commandments, the perfect law, the law of freedom, and the royal law. That's not just saying how many wonderful expressions of the law can we have. I need to think that's part of it. I think there's, there's a range of synonyms and, and filling out of a term that can happen with synonyms. But there's also times that we're communicating something a little bit different, maybe with some similarities. And so we have to work through that. And I think that's part of the challenge, especially in a New Testament context. But as you may also well be recognized as being a student of James, reading through it, wrestling through it, um, these last three articulations of the law are unique to James. So we have to wrestle through that. Why does he use unique terms for the law? Well, the first two are found here in verse 25, and then we have the third one also in chapter 2. So he uses a range of expression for the law, and we need to wrestle through how and why. And to some extent, we'll satisfy that. And to some extent, we won't satisfy that. And we'll continue to build that as we progress as well. But what is quite plain is that this is a, a substantial subject. Again, you could give copious amounts of attention to it. This is the, 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 the work of dissertations with, in terms of um, how is the law used? How do we understand it? It is a challenging subject. I think it's a discipline worth giving attention to, but we have to recognize the scope of our efforts today. We are working on James chapter 1, verses, well, 25, 26, and 27. We're not going to be able to exhaustively engage with that, but my own studies uh, will inform my conclusions, even if I don't fill it all out for you. Uh, it may feel like sometimes I am filling that all out, but I'm trying to, to relate study and struggle into a more concise expression. Some things, again, will satisfy. Some things we won't. Some things we'll continue to work through. So I'm not prepared to engage in an intensive focus of the New Testament's use of the law, but rather for our purposes, I think it's sufficient to establish that not all references to law have a narrow focus on what would be considered the law of Moses. Sometimes it is the law of Moses. Sometimes it's a broader expression of the scriptures. Sometimes it's components of things. Sometimes it's principles, precepts, and otherwise. Sometimes it's a New Testament emphasis. emphasis. We're just going to have to do some wrestling. So that being said, the, the way that this is addressed and, and part of what frames my approach to it is something we addressed last week as well, that the recognition that in the second half of this chapter, so the immediate context, there's continuity and context from book to book throughout the scriptures, but we have to narrow our focus first on where we are and we saw in the second half of the book of, uh, excuse me, second half of chapter one, how does James talk about the law and specifically the scriptures? Because he's using them interchangeably. And that gives us a little bit of insight here. So we have references to the scriptures to include these final ones that use the language of law. So part of the continuity and context that's being expressed by James is that he at times, uh, beyond our passage today, appears to have a view to the more traditional elements of the law, but is also operating in the different context than the law was originally applied. Again, a matter that can be uniquely difficult for us to parse through because James's writing came so early in the church age when there was plainly a transition being worked through. Um, however, he also uses law language that's intentionally broad. So again, let me just pause here because I know I might be losing you. I might be losing myself here. James uses the word law and he's a, what, he's a first century Jewish believer. He's probably got something in mind there and that's hard to wrestle through because now he's part of the church things are a little bit different now and the relationship to the law certainly changed and yet he's part of the earliest expressions of the church how does that work there's a little overlap and there may be a little bit of tension 
Because again, in the immediate text, what do you see up here and what do you see in your text? Synonymous treatment of the Word of God, the Scriptures, now tied in immediately, fluently, within our own immediate context of verses 22, 23, the Word, the Word, and now the perfect law, the law of freedom. He's dynamically using that law language for Scriptures. And yet again, we have to keep in mind, he's a first century Jewish believer. He's got some other things in mind that we're going to have to wrestle with. And so it's, again, it's, it's a difficult task, and it's a little bit of a, uh, it's a, well, it's just a difficult task, but we're going to work through it. So we addressed last week the range of terms, um, specifically with the word, uh, and this is where I want to focus our attention, that I do think he's using it synonymous with the scriptures, not just the law of Moses. And here's why I'm going to argue that here and now. So we saw in verse 18, the word of truth, which also happens to be a title synonymous with the gospel. In verse 21, he speaks of the implanted word or the word of God that's been fixed into your hearts, a grace that accompanies the work of sanctification. It's directly tied to one doing the necessary work of receiving the word. And then our most recent passages that I just mentioned, verses 22 and 23, he simply expresses the scriptures as the word. And now in this context of the command of application to the word of God that's been implanted in you to put it to action, he expresses this as the law, a descriptive expressions of the law. Um, the two references, again, being the um, perfect law, the law of freedom. This is why, again, there's tension, first century believing Jew, but he uses it synonymously with the whole of the scriptures and specifically the gospels and the implanted word, the sanctifying work of the word of God. So I don't think he's narrowing it down to the Mosaic law, not here. Now, in chapter 2, he does make references to the Mosaic law. And so is he, is he okay to do that? He is, and we're just going to have to do some wrestling with that. But I want you just to have a baseline understanding. We can't untangle everything. Not that James tangled it up. It's our doing. Disconnect of a long time and a lot of struggle. But I want you to recognize that here it appears to be an engagement of the scriptures. A synonymous term, but with the scriptures. And I state this recognizing, again, James's context. He's the earliest written letter of the New Testament church. A, a church that, again, consisted of believing Jews, presumably written before the Jerusalem Council, where, where they're doing what? They're wrestling with the application of the law of Moses. And how does the New Testament church require Gentiles? What does it require of Gentiles? Do they have to obey that Mosaic law? It's a hard concept. But enough has been said to establish, I hope, that here, while it's a complicated subject, it's very straightforward in our text that he's using it synonymously with the word of God. And I said all that, and I, again, I introduced a measure probably of, of confusion and struggle, and I apologize. I'm trying to strike that balance of explaining my argument without producing unnecessary burden of uh, protracted line of thinking, but it's a, big, it's a big subject we need to wrestle through. We don't need just to dismiss terms like law because law is so defining in the scriptures. And if we're going to say, well, we love the Old Testament and we love the New Testament and we see continuity, then we have to wrestle through those things. But ultimately... We narrow our focus to the immediate context, and I think we have good argument to say James loved the law, and he used his law language there, but here precisely, it's a doing of the whole of the testimony and the commandments of the scriptures, not necessarily precisely the Mosaic law, because we are part of the New Testament church. And part of this may have also been the burden that so many of my friends, teachers, commentators, they'll come to this and they'll say, ah, it's the perfect application of the Mosaic law as interpreted by Jesus. I'm like, that sounds really good. Where did you get that? They just said it. And so I feel like there's a little bit of a burden to, 
to recognize we carry with us theological presuppositions. And that's not bad. We couldn't operate if we didn't speak off of some measure of presupposition, right? We'd qualify everything. I, I have a friend that he's said that a critique of him is that someone asks him the time and he tells them how to build a watch and then tells the time. Um, sympathetic to that. But at the same time, we have to be able to operate off a of presupposition. I just want you to understand some of the background and foundation for it, not just glazing over it to recognize that our own theological presuppositions will govern how we think and approach these matters too. And I don't want you to get lost in that when ultimately, what are we being commanded to? We're being commanded to be doers of the word, to include that language of the perfect law, the law of freedom, which we'll now give our attention to here. So laying that groundwork, let's consider those two descriptions. The descriptions of the scriptures, using language of the law, but it's specifically the perfect law and the law of liberty. So the perfect law, uh, this use of perfect, should maybe get your attention by now. So if you've walked with us for, what, eight, ten weeks now, whatever it's been, you, you, I hope there's a measure of sensitivity to when you hear perfect, because you know that that's been a driving emphasis of mine in teaching James, and it's not just because, oh, that's how David wants to teach James. I convictionally think that's where James is driving us, and that's, I want to marry how I like to teach it and what James is saying. And so when you hear that word perfect, I want it to capture your attention, and this is now the fourth time that we've seen that key term that's been used in this book. And, and I say key term, it's not, it's not the most dominant term. It's not that you're going to do a word study of the book of James and see perfect in every uh, pericope, every chapter, every section. That's not necessarily the case. It's not going to be peppered through all the chapters and all, the, all such matters, but it's a term that does inform the aim of James and his writing, and therefore the aim of our study, namely that of applying the wisdom that comes from above, that we ourselves might be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. I think that's what he's driving us to. I think he's calling us to be the perfect man, perfect woman, which might think like, wow, that sounds like a, a dating pitch or something. No, that's not the case. This is a perfect, complete in Christ, the being conformed to Christ, being putting the old man aside. All the things that we appreciate throughout the New Testament, James is expressing in perfect, that sanctifying, progressive work of the Spirit of God conforming us to Christ. That's why, again, when we get to things like speech and you say, oh, only the perfect man can tame his tongue, James would say, yes, and you should. And that's what he's even addressing here in chapter 1. So he's driving us to that perfect um, person, as it were, that sanctified person. And so we recognize um, perfect here, though, isn't being used to describe the believer. It's that term that we love for that reason that we're driving our attention to, but now perfect is being applied in a different way. It's used to describe the law. So not unlike how James has also described the gifts provided by the Father of lights in verse 17, that he gives every perfect gift or every good thing given, every perfect gift is given from the Father from above, the Father of lights. And so we recognize that perfect not only is our aim, but it's the nature of God's good giving, and it's also the nature of God's good word. It is perfect. It's complete. So the principle um, of perfect still stands. The principle of description, the law, or as I would argue here, the scriptures are perfect. They're complete. They're lacking in nothing. Was, that's their, that was the nature of the scriptures at every point of inspiration. And so I recognize we, if we say complete, and yet we say they were perfect and complete at any given time in redemptive history, at the point of James's writing, have we excluded to all the subsequent writings? How can they be complete and even more complete? Well, they were complete 
at that point in time, they were perfect. That was the testimony of the script, the testimony of the Spirit of God for the church. It was perfect, complete. It was enough. It was sufficient. It satisfied what He wanted, and so it continued to build all the way through the completion of the canon. At which time, now it is fully satisfied, and in the totality, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing for our benefit. So again, the Scriptures are perfect in their composition and content of their individual books, and perfect in their whole both of which have now been complete with the New Testament canon having been closed. And it's this perfect word that the righteous man receives, this perfect law, this perfect scriptures. And what does he do? He, he looks into it. He abides in it. He remains in it. He's transformed by it, and he puts it to action. So you have the perfect word. It's been given by the Father of lights who gives all good things. If you've prepared yourself, you've received it. If you've received it properly, you've been transformed by it. If you've been transformed by it, now you are a doer of it. Now, as to the use of freedom or liberty, uh, this is a term that James only uses twice here in verse 25 and once more in chapter 2 where he is using it in a like manner, again referencing the law of freedom or the law of liberty. And these two references are the only times in the New Testament that we have the, the law of freedom. Um, and when giving this matter further attention this week, I found that uh, this gentleman, Paul um, Schmidt Bleicher, I'm not really sure. Um, it's an, I can't imagine him in kindergarten having to, to spell that for the first time, but a helpful resource, a helpful article on the law in the New Testament in which he filled out I'd say my own conclusions, but my own conclusions were in bud form, and he flowered them. So uh, I'm grateful for his work. And he stated the following, The law of liberty is God's in internalized principles and standards, which are to be carried out externally from an inner motivation. The inner motivation is the Holy Spirit working together with the implanted word. That's a view back to verse 19. And he later finishes, looking now to our text proper, the law of liberty is the very mind of the Lord from the whole of the Bible internalized in the believer. It persuades and moves the will of the believer to be the same as God's will under the filling of the Spirit. Because the will of God and the will of the believer are the same, the believer serves and obeys the will of God in perfect liberty. And I would argue such has been the relationship with God's word and particularly his law throughout redemptive history. It's, it's a law that when you abide by it, it's not burdensome. I know some New Testament language we're going to struggle with. You get to Paul and saying how the relationship with the law, he's engaging it from a different perspective. And you have to write, don't read Paul into James or James into Paul, but recognize they operate in concert and continuity. So that being said, if one has obeyed the scriptures, has obeyed the law, there's, they have enjoyed perfect freedom. There's always freedom within the context of obedience. Obedience is not constraining. And there's a joyful a satisfying liberty that I think is being expressed with the law, God's perfect law, God's perfect word. And it's in God's perfect law, the law of freedom, that the righteous man intently looks, he abides and gets busy about its work. That's what we do. We see freedom there. We see joy. We see satisfaction. A work that's not restricted to the elements of the Mosaic law, but the sweep of the principles, precepts, and truths of the scriptures that reveal the character of God and what he expects of his people to include the commandments that we have already given our attention to in this chapter and that I pressed as immediate points of application for us last week. So Wednesday, I reminded everyone when we go, we do a review of our message from Sunday and we address points of application and points of prayer within that. And I reminded you that, uh, you know what? Never have I probably given this many points of application in any given message. There's multiple points of application because all we have to do is look back at chapter one. 
doers of the word do the word. We consider it all joy. We let perseverance have its perfect work. We ask God for wisdom in faith. We boast in our providential circumstances. We don't blame God for our temptations. We have a right view of God's character and ways. We prepare ourselves and subsequently receive God's sanctifying work. Excuse me, sanctifying word. That's the nature of the doing, the looking intently upon this perfect, this liberating word, and then putting it to action. But James most certainly would have both the sweep of the Old Testament scriptures in mind as well as the oral teachings of Jesus. So he wouldn't have restricted himself to say, well, just what I've covered so far. He also has the Old Testament scriptures in mind. When he speaks of the law, there are times in which the law can, can capture the whole of the Old Testament. I think he has the whole of the Old Testament in law, uh, uh, the whole Testament in view. I think he does have, again, the oral teachings of Jesus in view because he draws from them. What people criticize James all the time. They say he, he's got the least Christology. And I say, well, you just don't listen to him because he sounds just like his half-brother Jesus. He, he expresses the oral teachings of Jesus. And he would also affirm that which um, would go on to be the apostolic teachings secured in our New Testament and the canon as well. Teachings and writings that, as we've spoken to in our work through Peter's letters, were even in their own time viewed as authoritative and inspired words of God. Peter recognized Paul. Peter recognized his own testimony of writing. I think James did here as well. Though admittedly, because the timing of James, which we always have to keep in mind, because it's so early, this last category of uh, the forthcoming teaching of the apostles and their, their canonizing writings, maybe we have to limit that a little bit because he hasn't been taught necessarily. But he does have all such in view. He has the Old Testament scriptures, the oral teachings of Jesus, the teaching of the apostles, and what would later become the New Testament canon. All of that's in view in what he encapsulates here. But again... The distinction that he draws from between this his negative illustration of the man looking in the mirror and his positive model here is that the one who is a hearer only looks and walks away apparently unmoved, unchanged, unmotivated for the actions that befit an engagement with God's truth, the totality of God's truth, the study of the Old Testament, the study of the Gospels, the study of the Epistles, and the study of Revelation. To look at that, to walk away unmoved, unchanged, he says, it's so strange. Let me tell you how strange it is. It's like a man that looked at a mirror and totally forgot what he even saw. That's very weird. That's very peculiar. And the fact is that we could so engage the totality and our engagement in the scriptures in that way is frightening. And as I tried to make clear last week, the issue was not the manner of one's looking, but the response to having looked. It was that, did he, well, maybe he didn't look well enough. And again, some commentators that are skilled and they're very knowledgeable. And I don't say that just because they filled up books. Sometimes I think they do that. I think they just fill up books with a lot of words, but skilled and knowledgeable commentators, some of them would say, well, James is emphatically using the term for man here. And, you know, a woman would have looked at the mirror more carefully. And I thought, boy, what, how, how patronizing and weird of a conclusion. That's not James's emphasis. Not at all. It's strange and it has a punch to it because the man did look intently and yet he walked away. And again, I, I'm aware that, again, commentators and teachers, they try to make much also of the manner of looking here. We addressed this a little bit last week, but I wanted to press it a little bit more clearly this week. Um, because not only do they say, well, it's a man versus a woman, but they also say, and reasonably so, there's a change of terms here. Well, let's pause here for a moment. There's a change of terms with how he talks about the scriptures. There's a change of terms with how he talks about deception. There's a change in terms with how he uses 
looking. That's not strange. That's the nature of how James is filling out his argument. But nevertheless, there are two different terms for looking in this passage. And often the second term is made much of because of its other references. There are very limited references, but you have in Luke and in John and in 1 Peter, where there's this dynamic of stooping down and one's looking and, and looking with particular measure of interest. And and I'm sympathetic to that, to, to giving special attention to how this term is used in these respective passages, recognizing that perhaps it should inform our appreciation of that intentionality of our own looking. So again, stooping in the grave, angels looking down, there is an intentionality to that, and I appreciate that. There's an intentionality expressed here, and that's a great word choice by James to switch words. I think that was skill. I think that's part of his writing, but we need not make too much of the distinction in these looks, as it were, because as I hope you remember, the man who looked in the mirror, he also looked with a clear intentionality too. It was an intentionality that the comparisons were with Abraham thinking about I'm an old man, my wife's an old woman, and we're going to have a child. That was the, the thinking was the same expression for the intentionality of the looking. So there is a, a clear intentionality to both expressions of looking. And that's, again, why James's illustration has a proper punch to it. The man looked, walked away, forgot, and in such exemplified the image of one who has looked upon God's word, found receiving it to be enough because he did receive it. Isn't that strange? Because that's exactly what's happening right now. If you're good listeners, if you've come with prepared hearts, prepared minds and attention to the text, you're where this man is. Every one of us is where this man is. Except he said that was enough. Receiving was enough. And then it was a receiving that lacked accompanying action and, and such. James said it wasn't just, well, he's a good student. He'll come around or he's a good student. What else can you ask? He says he's a good student and he's been deceived that he could walk out the doors and say, eh, nice weather. Wonder what going to do today. Unchanged by having received the word of God. So once more, the one who has properly heeded the command of verse 22 has looked, received, abided in, or remained in God's truth, and then put it to proper action. And in such, he is the one who is blessed in what he does. He is the one who is happy and fully satisfied in God because he's not just looked and forgotten. He's looked He's remained, and he's put it to action. And that's the one that's blessed. And we've walked through the nature of blessing and, and the terms of blessed enough to understand that we know the present experiences of being blessed is not usually, if ever, a life of cupcakes and roses, and maybe neither one of those are attractive to you. It's not an easy life. It's not one that everything goes according to plan or as hoped. But that doesn't mean there's an absence of blessing. Rather, it's the joyous reward that accompanies those who, as Jesus stated, are poor in spirit. Those are who Jesus said were blessed. Those who mourn, that's who Jesus said were blessed. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, that's who Jesus said were blessed. Same term. And I think James has his brother in mind here. It's the experience of being fully and satisfied, uh, fully satisfied and happy in God through present circumstances with a clear awareness that its fuller expression is yet to come and will be absent of these present troubles. It's as James has already encouraged us in verse 12, having a blessed disposition now that perseveres amidst various trials with a view to the promise of the crown to come. That's the nature of the blessed here. That's the nature of the one who does the word, who puts it to action. They're not just good hearers, they're good doers. So what a contrast he's established in this command of becoming doers of the word and not merely hearers. The hearer only, the one who finds it sufficient to have done the hard work of listening well, of studying, of accumulating knowledge, and who sees this as enough, is self-deceived. 
but the one who is pursuing the work of becoming a doer of the word, this one having also done the hard work of listening well, of studying, and of accumulating knowledge, all of which takes a tremendous amount of works and a tremendous amount of sacrifice and attention. He doesn't say, I've done step one and two, here's my answer, mm, got it wrong, because it's a three-step process. Rather, he now puts it to action, and therefore this one is blessed in what he does. And that's what we're aiming at. And that's what James commands. He's not just saying, again, that's a, don't study and not do because well, you know, you're lacking the full effect and full benefit. He's saying you're also lacking clarity of understanding. You're lacking um, the blessing and advantage that comes with that. You're lacking being satisfied in God. And also, by the way, you are self-deceived. So the commandment and its associated weight are clear. Becoming doers of the word and not mere hearers who delude themselves. Because again, it's not just, oh, that's unfortunate. No, it's beyond unfortunate. It's self-deception. It's you've gone down the road coming to the wrong conclusion. There's no turning around. There's no correcting this. What, well, there is a correcting. It's called repentance. And it's called putting it to action. But you've gone down the wrong road, and that's a frightening path to go. And this command will go on to carry the third and final subsection as well. So we said that this final subsection, the 26 and 27, it doesn't have a command in it, and yet it's the most religious of the sections because here he's talking about pure and undefiled religion, those who think they're religious, and yet it's this command that will carry us through the end of the chapter. So it's going to carry us through this final two verses. Again, the most religious section, as it were, a section that fills out this work of becoming a doer by way of the care of others and in the pursuit of personal holiness as can be plainly seen in these final two verses, 26 and 27, where James states, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, while not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his heart, his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And as we work through this final subsection, these final two verses, we'll observe that James's transition from the, the high charge and expectation to be doers of the word to the practice of such under the identity of religion. So being doers of the word, he's framing with a view to religion, thereby giving the act of doing more clarity in its structure and its application. Now, Structure and application are both terms we're well acquainted with in our study. And again, usually when you hear that word structure, you're probably almost um, uh, just out of natural habit, out of reflex. You look at the screen. Where's the grid? Where's the outline? Where's the boxes? Um, in this study, we've given a lot of time and attention to structure, the book's development, the relationship therein. But this is different. Um, here I'm using it in view of James's framing of this final section with a view to someone being religious or exercising their religion, which is a structured application, articulation of one's faith and its associated practices. That's what religion is. It's a, it's a structured articulation of one's faith and its associated practices. And I know that it's not popular uh, for us to express religion and identifying it with Christianity, but the fact is that by definition at least, Christianity is a religion. I know we, again, defer to it's not a religion, it's a relationship. I understand and I appreciate that language, but by statute and definition, it'd fall into religion. If you were checking boxes, uh, what's your race, what's your ethnicity, what's your hometown, whatever, what is your religion, you're not going to scratch through it and say relationship, you will ex or fill in the bubble next to Christianity. I hope, I hope you're in Christ and that, that would be a confident testimony you would have. 
But uh, it is a religion in that regard, a fact that we recognize while also, again, preferring to qualify its distinctions from the common and deficient trappings of what's usually identified as religion. And that's, that's why we, uh, I prefer this. Don't go back to making a clock. Just tell somebody the time. It's a religion. So we're functionally religious, albeit in a different context of relationship and standing with God. So we do recognize a distinction in that regard. But because we do assemble at prescribed times, and I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. It's prescribed is loosely applied for us sometimes. Um, we sing songs that are identified with sh- uh, shared spiritual and theological convictions. We do pray to our God. We sacrificially give of our resources and time. We, we study a canonized theological text each week. We proselytize, and we even have a defined clergy, a clerical system, as it were. That's all rather religious, so while having a prescribed structure to our faith and its practice it might sound contrary to Jesus' engagement of the Samaritan's woman at, the, at Jacob's well, where he states that true worshipers do not concern themselves with worshiping on Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion, but in spirit and truth, we're not inherently forfeiting this structure. We recognize, yes, we worship in spirit and truth. Yes, we recognize its relationship, but we also recognize that by the nature of structure and practice, it's religious, and that's okay. James is presupposing that we're operating off of recognizing it's okay because he's saying if someone regards themselves as religious, and that's, he's not saying, oh, that's silly fool. He's saying the problem is they're not religious, at least not in the way they ought to be as someone who's identified with Christ. And so again, while there's good reasons to view the, the earliest days of the church with a fondness to its, uh, you know, its relational intensity, I, I hear all the time like, oh, I thought we were just an Acts 2 church. I think, I'm not in an Acts 2 church. I'm a Gentile. I'm so grateful somebody went to the, well, it's not somebody, Philip went to the Samaritans and, and Peter went to Cornelius and they got it all figured out in Acts 15 and the gospel continued to advance and I'm grateful for the whole of that. But I recognize there's a, there's a relational intensity and, and even a, perhaps even an informality to the, to the early church, the earliest expression of the church as it were. James is part of the early church. But I would remind you again, as the, books of, as the book of Acts advances, so does the form and structure of the church. Now, all of a sudden, we have a problem with widows not being taken care of. So what do we do? We implement the prototype to deacons. And now we have a need to clarify doctrinal integrity. So now we have the, this assembling of, oh, we have elders in there now. Elders and the apostles mixing together, and, and they're codifying things. And we have continued form of structure. And that's okay. We don't want to need to romanticize the lack of structure, as it were. And as we advance in our reading of the New Testament, we go on to have letters that we commonly categorize as the pastoral epistles, which speak to these very matters to include Paul exhorting Titus to put what remains in order and the identifying and establishing of elders. There was a presupposition there that the church has some measure of order and there's still things to be done, appoint elders and make sure that the structure in some way, again, we can have high degrees of liberty what that looks like, but there is an expectation for some measure of structure, and with structure comes the identification of religion, as it were. And I'm pressing these qualifications here because I want you to see the weight of James's statement and not lose his intended impact for us because we functionally disassociated with that term religious. Because again, I think somebody, if they were like, say, you're a pretty religious person, you might be like, well, I don't know how I'd frame it that way. Don't overqualify. They're just saying that you identify with a church and that you're doing spiritual things and have a clear body of doctrine and expression of that. And you do religious things. That's true. So while for good reasons we choose to frame our faith as a relationship over religion, there's nevertheless in James, James's context here a value to being viewed as religious. 
Otherwise, we've lost the impact of one of uh, one's religion being worthless. It wouldn't matter if James says that guy's religion's worthless if there wasn't value to being religious. Because James is not saying all religions are worthless because we have a relationship with Christ. That's not the point that he's driving at here. Rather, he is saying that there are some who identify as being in Christ and who exercise their faith in the public assembly of the church and in the privacy of their homes for no good reason. And that's the frightening punch there. Don't get caught up on if any man's religious, I'm not religious. It's a, you may be doing things. You may be assembling with the church. You may have a public testimony. You may, even in the privacy of your home, labor and studying Bible study and teaching your family and speaking truth to one another for no good reason because it's worthless. Utterly lacking any value. And understanding it in that way secures our attention, does it not? Now it's like, whoa, what what, what is James saying here? He's gone from persevering through trials and developing this this clear path to um, becoming more perfected and conformed to Christ and having a right view of God to engaging the scriptures to now he's dropping the hammer and saying, congratulations on hearing and receiving them. Now get to work. And you say, well, I'm busy. He says, if you don't get to work, you're self-deceived and your entire restructure and relationship and identification with the faith is a worthless experience. That's pretty intimidating. And James isn't, isn't going rogue here. He's just expressing what, you know, his half-brother Jesus would have articulated as well and did articulate. We spoke to that last week, that if you've heard these words of mine and you put them in action, you're going to be like a man who's built his house upon the rock. But if you don't, washed away. And James is saying, you don't put it to action. It's all washed away. Now, with this in view, we'll do well to consider the weighty range of James's statement of if anyone, and I've already kind of qualified it here, but I'm going to go ahead and press it a little bit. If, so this is if I, I'll, I'll go ahead and put me up forward first here. So if I, but if you, if anyone thinks themselves to be religious while not bridling or controlling their tongue, they're self-deceived and their religion or self-declared relationship with Christ is worthless. It is a vain exercise of their time and their spending of their strength and their resources. So now James has gotten a little bit more precise. It's not just being doers of the word, whatever that means, but now it's even more precise. If you're not governing your tongue, you're not a doer. You just checked step one, step two. Don't think I did step three because lots of good works and a lot of intentional effort. James says, how's the tongue? Because if you're not governing the tongue, you are not a doer. So to be clear, if any of us fail to bridle our tongue, we have ultimately expressed that our religion is worthless. Because anyone whose heart is deceived in this matter has a worthless religion, not necessarily because it lacks substantive content or truths. That's true of false religions, and that's why they're worthless. But even having substantive content and truth, it can be worthless because, one of, because of one's failure to govern their tongue and to see this failure for what it is, a worthless religion, an expression of doctrine and practice that is no better than idolatry or a fool chasing a wish. You might think, well, that's, I don't know that you can really say that. That's fine. You don't have to take issue with me. James is saying it. And then I'm in lockstep with James saying, I agree. I'm not pawning it off and saying, I'm just saying what James said. I agree. I'm saying it too, because James is saying it. And it's really hard. And it puts us in a really distressing situation because now we start evaluating, how's my tongue because I don't want to be worthless. And that's a good place to be to wrestle there. Because not unlike what James will go on to say about a faith that lacks works, effectively a faith which mimics 
the knowledge of the demons. It's the same kind of thing. He says, you know, you say you have faith, but you don't have works. Well, the demons do as much themselves. They have knowledge as well. There is a component to understanding, yes, but it's complemented by doing. And the doing here is the governing of the tongue. Therefore, James appears to be demonstrating that the governing of the tongue and all that goes with such is not necessarily a prerequisite for receiving the sanctifying work of the word, but also the faithful execution of its practice. We've already seen, be quick to, uh, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. It wasn't just, oh, that nice Proverbs-like language to kind of warm us up to receiving the word. Now we see that he was, he was drawing the hammer back and now he's slammed it down. Govern the tongue. So there's a clear clearly a profound weight associated with one's words and they're being properly governed a matter that the scripture consistently speak to in a variety of contexts and one such place in which we have a clear association between the heart and the mouth is, with, uh, is when um, those who would have thought themselves religious and they were very religious offended with their lips in one of the most profound ways possible blaspheming the holy spirit so while rooted in a more extreme, severe historical context, the principles of Jesus' expressed uh, response here, they're universal in their application. So again, I recognize there's a historical context here. I know who Jesus is talking to. I know what their offense is. But nevertheless, what Jesus says in response carries over even to our thoughts here in James. And so let's hear what Jesus had to say in such matters of governing the tongue and what that reflects. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Okay, we would say that with any works, exactly. For the tree is known by its fruit. Again, we would affirm that. Where's the connection to speech? Well, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the days of judgment. That's a, that's, that's a one-sentence statement lock you up with terror, isn't it? Because it's not just, I tell you what every careless word that y'all spoke, he's saying that, that people speak. There is an accounting for language. For by your words you be justified, and by your words you be condemned. So one speech is plainly a matter of no small consequence, and it receives attention accordingly throughout the New Testament. So it's especially peculiar that this is an area of life that someone could look at God's word and walk away as though there was nothing to be done in the governing of one's tongue. To look at a text like this and say, hmm, sounds pretty serious. And then go off to just say and act however you please. Delusional. And yet I know that many of us encounter those who would, in James's words, in some measure consider themselves religious, at least in their testifying to being in Christ and actively part of the life of the church, and yet they'll go on to excuse their unfiltered opinions, their lack of maturity or discipline with their words, their fruitless com um, complaints and critiques, and perhaps even their biting and devouring of others with their words. And sometimes those same persons, they'll volunteer their defense, or at least they'll have it readily prepared if they're confronted, a defense that's usually some iteration of, this is just who I am. I was born this way. Well, you were born with all kinds of ugly, and not physically. There's a it's a tainted heart. It was a sin-filled life. But they might continue on. It, it's, who I've, it's who I am. It's who I've always been. And it's who I always will be. It's just, it's just how I talk. It's how I engage people. You don't like it. You know, whatever. That's a most striking confession. That's a terrifying confession. Because if they maintain that they are in Christ, that they've just, then they've just expressed that they have discovered a critical area of life that the Holy Spirit cannot access for a sanctifying work. 
It's who I am. It's who I've always been. It's who I am. It's who I always will be. In other words, the Spirit of God has no territory here, no jurisdiction, no authority, no ability. It's the part of my person that's impervious to the authoritative power of the implanted work working within me. They've testified that their heart is unchangeable because their tongue is untamable. That's a frightening place to be. And James has a response for that. He's, he's not saying, well, yeah, that is how you've always been ever since I've known you. He responds, you're deceiving your own heart and your religion is worthless. Not a recipe for church growth. Not a recipe for making a lot of friends, but it is a recipe for gospel clarity and for bringing people to a place of repentance from delivering them from having heard and thinking that having heard, I do. And thinking maybe I do because I do a lot of decent things, but you're not even governing your tongue, which is indicative of a whole lot of other things. James is in no way ambiguous. An unbridled tongue is dangerous. But if you honestly conclude otherwise that your unbridled speech is permissible or that such matters are just a, not an especially big deal, then with James, I'd say you've deceived your own heart and I would fear for you. And as we've established before, deception is a cruel tool when wielded against someone else. It, to mislead, to, to divorce truth from the reality of circumstances and to take someone down that road, is, it's a cruel action towards someone. But self-deception is one of the worst self-inflicted harms one can exercise. And while cr- closely related, do not think of self-deception as a, maybe a form of dementia where the natural and physical abilities of one's mind maybe begins to diminish as they become increasingly forgetful or confused, coming to conclusions that are detached from objective observable facts. Dementia is terrifying and tragic. It's an experience that many faithful men and women will experience because the natural body fails. But self-deception, self-deception is different. It is a choice. Self-deception is a choice to exchange the glories and demands of truth for a truth and practice of your choosing and deciding yourself to be right. No, that's, I see what God's word says. I think this, and you know what? I'm right. That's absurd, unless you're self-deceived. It's the willful creating of forgetfulness. So whereas I've heard the phenomenon of forgetting or or losing a a thought simplistically explained, and that was helpful for me because I'm not a neuroscientist and I don't know how the things bounce from one to the other, but how people forget things is basically one message signal bounces to the next and that gap sometimes is not successfully accomplished. The relay is broken down. So there was a thought. It's working through the chain of your thinking and it misses the leap. And wait a second, I thought I had an idea, but where did it go? That's the nature of forgetfulness. Knowing that they had a thought or having a thought, knowing someone had a thought, not being able to recall what it is that they were thinking. And that happens. Sometimes it happens more to some than others. But this self-deception is the willful fostering of that process in spiritual matters. Having heard it as though one never heard. Though they probably know they heard something, it escapes their attention and they advance as though nothing ever happened. That's a frightening place to be. Either opening, reading, listening, engaging, studying, or otherwise. As though you looked in the mirror, boy, there's some work to be done. Walked away, nothing happened. And so the tongue is cut loose in all of its uh, shame. So James is reminding us that if you want to know what is on the inside, then just listen. It comes out of the mouth. And if you want to understand the whole of, the per- of someone's conduct, you can, you can watch them or you may just need to listen to them. 
speech isn't the be-all, end-all of itself. It's indicative of the heart, and it will inform you of the conduct. In time, that person will tell you. Again, you don't have to observe them. If you listen, you will know the nature of the character. The nature of the character will govern the nature of the actions. And that's part of the reason you might be like, boy, why is James so focused on speech? Because speech is indicative of the heart, which is also indicative of other actions. You are not a doer if you're not a bridler of the tongue. So that disconnect of person from being pious or sacramental in conduct and yet maintaining an unbridled tongue produces a worthless religion. Now, we, we've leaned into this kind of hard because of the weight of the matter. Much is at stake, right? We all have the capacity to fail and offend here. And as is often the case, the danger here could be to think about a, a list of persons you wish were here to hear this firm word from James. Like, oh boy, that person sure could use this message. That person is, is us. Because, you know what, we are religious folks. Or at least those of us who think, we think of ourselves as religious those of us who dedicate no small measure of time, strength, and resources to gather together. You made effort to be here this morning. Not everybody did. People are driving around. I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're going to church. Maybe they're going to work. Maybe they're doing other things that they need to get done. But there was a measure of sacrifice and time and attention. You, you gave. Okay, that's commendable. You engaged in corporate prayer, private prayer. That's part of, that sounds very religious. You sang. I heard you. There's not enough of this. You can't hide. I, we heard you. We're singing. You're singing about truth. You, you serve one another. You care for one another. You invest one another. You listen to truth. You, you learn. You even teach. You share with one another. You give. You fellowship. That's all religious. We're a religious group here. So we may not have the highest expression of formality and liturgy, but boy, are we quite a religious bunch. And all of us in our respective roles work very hard to make our times together profitable for the whole of the church. And by way of learning... We're not lacking in substance in terms of the, the content of our faith. But we are not impervious to these dangers of self-deception. That's the frightening thing. Don't, don't think, well, I'm very, I am very religious. I'm here. I'm engaged in these ways. We're not impervious. We're not, we're not immune to these dangers of self-deception by way of lacking application of truth, by way of not bridling our tongue, by way of failing to serve others, and by way of succumbing to the staining experiences of this world which are the matters that James is going to address now. We can still fail with our tongue, but now we can also have to recognize there's more work to be done. It's not just receiving, it's doing. It's not just doing, it's bridling the tongue. It's not just bridling the tongue, but how are you caring for others and also how are you governing your own holiness, which is where he's taking us now. And thankfully, it's a less somber note. It's a more encouraging one, hopefully, unless we're just completely negligent, and then maybe we need to continue to feel the tightening of the screws by James. But I think it's a little bit less of a somber note now, because he provides us here now a clear path for the one who is becoming a religious doer by way of instructing us that those who are, not who think themselves, but who are religious doers of God's word, this is the nature of our conduct, this is the nature of our disposition, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So whereas one betrays their superficial and worthless religion by their undisciplined tongue, which speaks their hearts and gives plain indication of their conduct and the motivation behind it, there's the counterpart now that's reflected in a bridled tongue, a controlled tongue, a disciplined tongue, one that expresses the voice of a life and service to others in a pursuit of holiness before God. 
This is pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father. It's the outworking of one's faith in a manner that reflects the character of God, which is abounding in love toward others and also the exercising of holiness in one's own life. Again, it's pure in its service and holy in its conduct. And in expressing a, a righteous and true religion that one ought to pursue, James is, is fairly concise here choosing to provide exemplary examples over exhaustive ones. And so don't just say, well, have I, have I helped a widow and an orphan recently? Check, check. Am I pursuing holiness? Yeah, trying. Check. Pure and undefiled religion. He's rather giving a, a sweep of things under these concise examples. So these are concise but exemplary examples. So he speaks to demonstrating care for those who are most naturally vulnerable and in need as they suffer the providential circumstances with which they've been allotted. I don't know how many widows didn't choose to be widows and orphans didn't choose to be orphans, and yet that's the providential circumstances the Lord and his grace and his providential kindness has provided for them, and now they're in special need, special need of care. How will you respond? And he speaks again the daily challenge of also not being in this world, excuse me, of not being, being in this world but not of this world, of being engaged and yet unstained. So let's look at these first two categories, uh, or categorical examples of persons. So as stated, James references the orphan and the widow. Again, it's not just, have you, um, have you walked to a senior citizen across the street today? Don't even try it out here. That would be disastrous. It's not about checking checklists and James having a short checklist. It's about being exemplary in its examples. And so these are broad expressions of people who are in need, needy persons because they lack the necessary means to care for themselves. And that was the that was the nature of the widow and the orphan. They liked the critical support system being cared for by immediate family, being without a husband, being without parents. And so that's the nature of this language of orphans and widows. They don't have, they're in need. It's an, it's an extraordinary opportunity to come alongside, to exercise the compassion of God and the, the tenderness of serving others in a way that they can't return back to you. And it's because of that, categorical nature that the care of or the orphan and the widow has been addressed throughout the scriptures and it provides an intimate expression of the applied compassion of God and therefore the heart of God. And you see in there several expressions of it in the, the law and especially Deuteronomy and it's not just because, well maybe they had a lot of widows and orphans, that is the case, but as Isaiah will go on to say, you want to know the heart and character of God, care for the widows, care for the orphans. Again, not because there's some special categorical group, but because they're the ones in unique need. And it's an expression of the heart of God. And such is why they can serve as an exemplary example of service to others in need. It's not, again, that James is limiting the application and scope of service, but is addressing the nature of the character. And some of you may be thinking that, wait a second, in view of that, in view of what you're saying, that caring for those who are in need of mercy, exemplifying the heart of God in such manners, you might be thinking, James sounds like Jesus again, doesn't he? Well, of course he does. And maybe you're thinking about the engagement in Luke 10 where a lawyer or a scholar of the law asked Jesus what one must do to inherit eternal life. And so began an engagement that led to Jesus answering a follow-up question as to who is one's neighbor. And as we're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves, and this led to the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man who did what? He exemplified mercy to the one who was in need the one who demonstrated a truer God-pleasing religion than the recognized religious men who simply passed by the one in need of mercy. Or perhaps you're thinking that James reminds you of Jesus in another way here. 
as you recalled, the affirmation and rebukes expressed in Matthew 25, which again, while having their own context, we recognize they have their own context. Nevertheless, they demonstrate the character of God's people as they did what? They visited others or expressed compassion toward and care toward others who were in need. Don't get caught on the two primary examples provided by James, but what is he expressing? It's expressing the compassionate care of those in need, not because, again, we're looking for some merit badge, but because that's what God's people do. That's what doers of the word do. And so, again, here the testimony that has a precise context, but the principles mark God's people. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, the doers of the word, those who don't just think themselves religious, but they are doers of the word. They have bridled tongues, and they seek to marry the implanted word with genuine faith conduct. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we seek you or, or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? They're not self-deceived to be like, well, yeah, I guess there was that time. I forgot, Lord. Yeah, I remember when Jesus came over. They're not delusional. It was the nature of their character. It was who they were. And this marries over with and the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to, the, one of the, to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. That was just the nature of their character. They, they gave generously. They sacrificially cared for others. They exercised the faith that they declared to have. The implanted word worked its work in them. By contrast, those who thought themselves to be religious, by way of comparison, I am, I am dynamically weaving these things two together. I think you're following fine. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, those who are self-deceived, not doers of the word, thinking themselves religious and unbridled tongues in their conduct as well, and to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they, will, then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? They're not self-delusional and be like, there was that time I saw Jesus on the side of the road. And I thought, hey, there's Jesus and honked and be like, honk if you love Jesus, honk if you see Jesus. No, it's a, it wasn't their character. They had no connection to doing the word. Therefore, I'll say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these things, and, and, and these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The righteous whose pattern of life is that of a pure and undefiled religion who visit orphans and widows in their affliction, an expression that plainly has a literal application. I recognize that. There, there was a need to visit, to, to not just visit like, you know, I punch card, came by, checklist, met the, met the criteria here but it was compassionate care exercised toward those in need. And there were those in need. We talked about already the New Testament church, the care of the widows was a very serious matter. Uh, Paul even gives clear testimony to it in, in Timothy's writings with what's a widow indeed. There's, there's application there. I recognize that there's a literal 
first level of application, but there's also the application of broader principles too, as it serves not to limit, but to exemplify the nature of our conduct toward others, applying compassionate care to those in need. Visiting, again, being the exercise of intentional and sacrificial care, and this is their, is their, and their naturally great needs, most notably, it says, and their afflictions. They're suffering, they're struggling, and you meet them there, because that's what doers of the word do. So when James expresses a religion that can stand before God as pleasing to him, he's not introducing some new expression of worship and conduct. He is simply calling upon the church to a consistency of practice that has always been befitting of God's people, the kind of consistency that affords the dynamic interchanging of references from the word of God, the implanted word, to the law. Because that's the nature, the character, the conduct of doers of the word. And he finishes with, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Keeping oneself unstained or unmarked by the world and its perverse tainting, such as the pursuit of holiness, which if you're familiar with holiness, then you know it is hard to secure. It's hard to be holy, and it's hard to maintain holiness. Now to think through this for a moment, I'll provide some illustrations and then bridge back to a complimentary text as we begin winding down this morning. This is, I've mentioned before, um, not to wear out familiar examples, but hopefully they'll, they'll remain with you and help you think about these things. Um, it's not unfamiliar experience in our home or in various places for Denise to be engaged with a question expressed with uh, a measure of anxiety to it. Um, um, uh, maybe from an adventure outside or even just a, uh, having a meal together, maybe a meal that was not skillfully consumed. And that question is, will it come out? Will this come out? And it's usually associated with, you, do you see what I'm talking about? I, something made offensive contact with my garments and it left a mark. Will it come out? There's the fear of a stain of spoiling some article of clothing, permanently leaving its mark. This is among the reasons you will rarely see me. Frank is, is a brave man. He wears white dress shirts. Today, I don't know, maybe it's different, but not spaghetti day, but... Um, yeah, he's, he's, not a, he's not an eater at the church, but you'll, you'll rarely see me in white dress shirts. They have a precarious exi- existence as they're so easily and obviously stained. It's, all, it's there. It's plain. And life will stain. Um, obviously, um, things can be stained by way of food, by way of life experiences. Light-colored garments, white gar- garments, boy, they, they are some dangerous territory. They're hard to maintain their whiteness, such as the nature of holiness. It's hard to maintain holiness. And so if spaghetti's on the menu, there are great pains taken to make sure spaghetti is not also on the shirt. And there's a skill to that. Those noodles, they just, they dance, they move, they slide. And you walk into that meal on high alert and aware of the challenge before you. At least some of us do. Some of you, I don't know how you go through life. You, you don't worry about these things. You're not focused and, and your shirts are fine. That's okay but there's an alertness because of the danger involved. That's what we're aiming at. But there are other peculiar threats that will stain too, one of them being uh, an, an extraordinary, extreme example, of which I've not participated in. I think maybe some Neils have, I don't recall now, but uh, races called Tough Mudders. Yes, yeah, so there have been some Tough Mudder races, and it includes a range of obstacles, many of which are associated with, you could probably guess this, mud. Lots of mud. It's probably not a successful Tough Mudder without copious amounts of mud. An experience that's guaranteed 
to leave a finishing contestant dirty, if not filthy, and most likely with stained garments. And I think about these experiences when hearing James's call to keep ourselves unstained by the world by a culture and system of beliefs and practices that are antagonistic to the things of Christ. And I think about what I shared a moment ago, holiness, again, it's hard to secure and hard to maintain. So because life serves spaghetti, that's, you can't get away from that. It will serve you spaghetti. You have to be diligent because you know there's a measure of caution to, to staying aware and, and, and maybe even having to employ a quick washing if there isn't a, an occasional splatter that finds its way on us. It might happen, but don't let it happen because of a lack of diligence. And then don't just sit there and be like, oh, you know, stains happen. No, it's, will this come out? What can I do? I want it to be right again. That's what holiness does. But we would be wise on the contrarian side to not accept the invitation to the, to the mud-themed race if we're trying to keep a white shirt. Because it will plainly, it, it will be a fun experience in that moment, most times, not always, but such is the nature of the deceit of sin, but it's guaranteed to leave you stained. Because pure, um, and, and, we, and so why would we not do that? Well, why walk into something that's not going to challenge your holiness, but assault it in such a way that I don't know how you think you're going to come out of this unstained. Caution, not recklessness. Because again, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father not only includes service to others, but the preservation of holiness in one's life. So we're diligent and we're not foolish. And for students of the scriptures, this is a familiar anthem that rings throughout. And for many of us, we hear our old friend Peter here as well, where he commands us, fix your hope and be holy. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16 Therefore, having girded your minds for action, be sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not become conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it felt like a kind of a weighty experience today. Um, but perhaps we can, we can compress uh, what I was aiming for down to one sentence that I hope will force in its simplicity a thousand thoughts to come to mind, to run through your mind, to run through your heart, provoking you to action and faithfulness. So I'm going to close with uh, one final sentence, as it were, a simple sentence, an exhortation. Beloved, become religious doers of God's word. If you understand that, that pastoral affection, that call to do the work of exercising our faith in such a way that's consistent with the character of God and not as one who self-deceived, then I think that we might have gotten James 1, 19 to 27. To receive the word, to be transformed by its sanctifying work, putting it to action and putting it to action in the expression of service and care of others and the preservation of holiness in one's life. That's what he's aiming for. What's the result? If we actually do this, we're going to work toward a greater perfection, a greater conformity to Christ. Now, on the flip side, well, there's no flip side, is there? Self-deception? What a frightening place to be. We need to pray the Lord preserve us from from that danger. Um, Preserve us from failing to to really take God for his word. You know, if you don't take me for my word, 
I can understand that. What, what authority do I have in, in your lives in so many ways? And But it'd probably frustrate me. Thanks for listening and not taking me at my word. Okay. Next time, use your time better. This is God's word. We take him at it. We listen. We submit. Or every time you walk by a mirror, recognize there's something I should do, but I'm not going to because that's the foolishness of that choice of conduct. And it's a dangerous, dangerous path. But James presumes and we trust for something better. So what we're going to do is we're going to pursue being doers of the word. We're going to care for one another and care for others in need. We're going to pursue holiness and we're going to put it to action in every other way, including the bridal tongue. But to that end, let's ask the Lord would help us. Lord, we thank you that where you are a God who is abounding in mercy and compassion, it's clear that mercy and compassion and sacrificial and generous expressions of love um, can't overlook one who has no regard or esteem for your word. It can in the sense if there's repentance and there's restoration. But Lord, what a, a sobering command that James has provided for us. I think if we had done a quiz ahead of time and we said, where's James really going to push us hard and where's he going to challenge us to, to really self-examination and, 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 and really evaluate the nature of a genuine believer, I think we would have presumed in, in chapter 2, faith without works is dead. But he's already laid the foundation for that. Because if one is a hearer and not a doer, there was never, never a working faith there to begin with. Lord, would you be pleased to give us help? Um, we have heard. We do hear. We enjoy hearing. We work hard to hear. Lord, would you give us the grace to accompany that hearing with the, the conduct that is becoming of the faithful? And if there's a failure to, to bridle the tongue, God, would you give us the grace to, to see that for what it is and the grace to um, engage one another in, in a way that it can be winsome and that if, we've, if we haven't expressed but really certainly thought those words that, well, it's just who I am and it's who I always will be. It's a matter of personality and, and otherwise. We've seen men in the scriptures with strong personalities. We've watched Peter and we've seen Jude and we've even... Uh, recognized that uh, John was called a son of thunder, probably not because he was some soft, squishy guy. We've seen him, uh, strong personalities. But we've seen that you s bring those under submission to the Spirit of God, and we've seen how you've bridled their tongues and enriched them with truth and put their conduct in, in a path that is faithful. So we ask, Lord, would you be pleased to accomplish that in us? Would you be pleased to help us again that we would indeed truly be not just merely hearers who delude themselves, but doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.